Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, and my name is Cindy Burnett. Each episode, I interview authors about their latest works, and others in the book world about their jobs, what those jobs entail, and the books that they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at thoughtsfromapage. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least three bonus episodes a month. We now have a new Facebook group where we all chat books, and we are currently reading an advanced copy of a book and chatting with the author pre-publication. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. The support really makes this podcast possible. I'm excited to be kicking off 2022 by chatting with Julia Kelly about The Last Dance of the Debutantes. Julia is an international best-selling author of historical women's fiction books. Her books have been translated into 13 languages. In addition to writing, she's been an Emmy-nominated producer, journalist, marketing professional, and for one summer, a tea waitress. Julia called Los Angeles, Iowa, and New York City home before settling in London. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Julia. I'm so glad you're back with me again, this time to talk about The Last Dance of the Debutante. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me back. I really, really enjoyed getting the chance to speak to you. I did as well. So as soon as I knew this book was coming out, I was like, okay, I've got to make sure we get to chat again. Well, I really appreciate that. It's it's going to be fun to talk about, hopefully. I'm really looking forward to this, actually, because it's a different time period than a lot of historical fiction authors focus on, and I don't really know that much, so I have a lot of questions for you. Absolutely. More than happy to talk about them. Well, before we dive into all of that, why don't you give us a quick summary of The Last Dance of the Debutante for those that won't have read it yet? Sure. The Last Dance of the Debutante is, as you say, a book that is set a little bit later in the 20th century than a lot of people are writing about right now. So it's set in 1958. And the reason it's in 1958 is because that's the last year that Queen Elizabeth II received debutantes as, at court for what, what were called presentation parties. Um, so this is London's elite society, a uh, high society, and the presentations actually kicked off the London season, which some people may, may be familiar with through things like Bridgerton and other books. And so my book actually follows a young woman named Lily, who is being pushed to be a debutante by her mother and her grandmother. Um, who themselves have been debutantes. And Lily is aware of this family tradition and understands that it's important to her family. But the further she goes into her season, the more she realizes that 
maybe there are some options that she didn't necessarily think about or didn't even know about uh, when it comes to what her life might look like beyond her season. So this comes about because she meets two very different women, uh, one named Liana, who's more of a traditional debutante figure, and Catherine, who has career ambitions. And so Lily really feels pulled in a couple of different directions while she's going through the season. And then because it's one of my books, of course, there is a mystery around family at the middle of it. And Lily realizes that she's going to have to make some very difficult decisions because her life is not as she as it has been presented to her so far. So there are some big secrets, some things that people have been keeping from her about her family. And it prompts a lot of these sort of coming of age and growing up questions for her. I'm trying to be very careful about spoilers and uh, trying to make sure that I don't I don't trip over myself and and reveal what those big secrets are. So we'll see how I do here. It's hard sometimes. I have the same problem. I'll think of a question that I really want to ask, and then I'm like, oh, but even that question is a spoiler, or the answer would be yes. a spoiler. So it's hard sometimes to not let those secrets out. Absolutely, it's it's a tricky one, but it's you know it, it's doable. We can make it work. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was such a wonderful read and you really just dropped me right into that time period and everything that was happening. And it's such an interesting time period because it's really a time period of kind of calm before the storm almost. You know, the war is done, the 60s haven't happened yet, but there is a lot of change going on. That's right. I think that's really what attracted to me uh, to this period in, in the first place is you have Britain really going through the start of a lot of change. So as you say, the war is over. Austerity, which lasted well beyond the war, is over. So if you think of sort of Dior and the new look uh, and these acres and acres of fabric and all this excess, that wouldn't have been possible during austerity. So Lily is a young woman who's grown up partially in that period of time. But over the last few years of her life, she's really had the opportunity to start living in a, in a very different Britain. And one of the things that's so different, although I think at this point in time, people don't necessarily know yet to pinpoint this as a big turning point, is that women's roles are going to dramatically change in the coming decade. So you have things like the swing in 60s, um, you have the sexual revolution, the women's rights and second wave feminist movements. So it's really at the doorstep of a lot of change that's about to happen. And I, I always love, and I think as a writer, it's very natural to be attracted to periods of change because it puts your characters into a situation where they have to make decisions Sometimes it can stress your characters, which I think always makes for good story and also reveals a lot more about these people that we're reading about. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's fascinating to look at these time periods that appear calm at the time, but there's clearly so much brewing. It's kind of truly the calm before the storm, before everything you just mentioned is going to completely alter the way the world works. And so it's interesting to look at those periods and kind of see under the current or under the, the surface what was really happening. Absolutely. It's, it's, really, it's really a fascinating time period to write about. And then, of course, also you have changes in high society, which is obviously a very narrow and very privileged group of people, but they're really about to go through massive change as well because the London season, as we know it, really begins to end. So this is, of course, with the end of the debutantes and the debutante presentations, that was a lot of the focus of the season, although not all of it. And it does go on for some time after the end of the book. Um, so different events start to fall away sort of in the mid to late 60s, early 70s. And we really don't have the season as it once was. So there's a lot of people that are sort of on the precipice of change. But the question is whether some of them understand that that's what's happening. Um, and some of them maybe are still a little willfully ignorant. 
Or purposely ignorant. (laughs) Exactly. They don't want things to change because they're very invested in maintaining the status quo for themselves. And a lot of that is, of course, a class and status thing as well for a lot of these people. Absolutely. And I think something that we see happening a little bit today as well. Yeah. In a different way, but the same idea. People don't want things to change. Definitely. So what was the process like for being chosen to be presented to Queen Elizabeth II? Like, How did you apply to do that and how did people get chosen? Well, you're absolutely right that it was an application. Um, So mothers, aunts, grandmothers would write to the palace and request an invitation for their daughter, niece, whoever it was that they were representing. And the reason that you have a representative or a sponsor or chaperone is because a woman had to herself have been presented at court in order to then present a girl. So it's a way of kind of keeping the, the circle of people who are eligible to be even looked at as potential debutantes very tight uh, and very elite. Although there are there are reasons why the debutante presentations went away. And the most kind of commonly bandied about is that Princess Margaret looked around uh, one of the years and said, they're letting every tart in London in these days. And so in her very elegant, gracious way, uh, she sort of pinpointed part of what people saw as kind of quote unquote, the problem, which was that the the face of high society had changed. You no longer had as many landed titled aristocratic families as you once would have. And instead, you're having things like diplomats' daughters, bankers' daughters, barristers' daughters, people who were would have been maybe 100, 150 years ago, absolutely not considered for being a debutante. But for for the purposes of this book, first you had to write to apply, and then you had to be invited by the Lord Chamberlain to attend. And then you would have to go about, depending on how intense your debutante training is, and I'll, I'll talk specifically about Lily's experience because she does the whole thing. She was sent to France. She was pulled out of school in England and sent to France to be finished. Um, so that's where she would have been taught conversation, how to carry herself in a room, the various ways of getting through a meal, what she would expect. It was basically a training course, essentially. And then also you were supposed to polish your French as well. And then she came back to London and would have done things like taking classes at uh, Madame Vacani's Dance Academy in uh, Knightsbridge, I believe it was. And that's where you would learn how to curtsy correctly. And you would, you would, of course, have to go and get your wardrobe, including your presentation dress. And then there are other items that are very specific to different dances and events. But you also had a couple of long dresses, a few cocktail dresses, things that you would wear over and over again throughout the season because you were basically gearing up for going to months and months of parties. And that sounds really fun. But, you know, when I go to a party, it's it's sort of you get dressed up for one night and you go and it's unique and, you know, it's a bit novel because you haven't done it for a while, especially in, in recent, you know, recent months. For these women, they were looking at going to events, sometimes three in a night for multiple nights a week for months. So it really was this sort of social marathon. And all the debutantes I talked to and all the debutantes who I read about in research talked about how exhausting, mentally and physically exhausting this was because you sort of almost become nocturnal. Your your day really starts at 6 p.m. when cocktail parties would kick off and sometimes you wouldn't get home until dawn. So it's this, it's this sort of training ground they have to go through in order to then make it through the season itself. That all does just sound absolutely exhausting. The other component to it, too, is that you're really going to the same parties with the same people. 
So it's not even like you're going to all these different parties and there are different guests, but you're all going through the exact same process. So I'm assuming you see the same people at each event, or at least many of the same people. Oh, yes. You see the same people. You uh, dance with the same men uh, who were nicknamed Deb's Delights if they were single, unmarried men. And the, the old joke was that, you know, so long as you had a good dinner jacket and you were, you were an educated young man, you could swing an invitation to any event because they were always looking for young men to, to dance with the girls and sit with them at dinner. But, you know, it was exhausting by all accounts because really it has this repetition of party, 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 party <laughs> over and over again. And I think at some point in the book, I do write that one of the girls says, you know, I, I almost don't know if I'm coming or going and whose party I'm going to and where I'm meant to be. I, you know, my life is ruled by my, by my diary, by my calendar. So it really was, or at least it sounds to me, incredibly intensive. And, and I think it would have been quite a strain, actually, for a lot of girls. Incredibly stressful, I think. Yes, definitely. To worry about what you were included in, you know, because it sounded like from your book, that you weren't invited to every party. So then you have to worry, well, why wasn't I included in this one or would love to have gone to that one? So the whole process just definitely sounds like it would take a huge toll on you. Absolutely. Some of it was really about making sure that you made the sort of, uh, and, I, and I say this with a big, slightly sarcastic grin on my face, that you made friends with the right people, which re- would have really mattered to this class and this generation, especially the, the parents who had gone through this process before. But it it really sounds like it was just one of those things where you sort of had to make your friends and find a way to get through the season. And maybe you ended up with a nice boyfriend. Maybe you ended up engaged, as you know, a couple of girls did in, in real life through the season. And some actually met their husbands and and you know future partners through through the season. But really, it was about sort of just being in the right place at the right time, getting the right invitations, because that was the social collateral for a lot of women in that in that class. Almost like a social hierarchy within all of this stuff. Absolutely. And it was one of the things that I wanted to explore a little bit in the book was looking at, you know, okay, we think of this band of the upper class or high society. But within that, as, as with any sort of subculture or group of people, there's stratification and, and class within there. So what does it mean to be a girl who has been, you know, her family has been bringing out debutantes for eight generations versus a girl who's just being brought out and not even being brought out by her mother, but being brought out by a professional chaperone who her family is paying an incredible amount of money to in order to make sure that she meets the right people and also sort of legitimizes the new money in the family. So I think it's really interesting looking at taking a closer look at this group of people that we we may sometimes just assume, oh, everybody was the same because they all went to these dances. They all were debutantes. But there is some variety there. I think it's like with any group of people that once you really dive into it, even if it looks like it's homogenous, it's not. Absolutely. And I, and I don't want to overplay the fact that in order to even be presented, you really are talking about girls who have exclusive access to a band of society that most of us, myself included, would never have access to. So it is a very privileged world, but I think it's a fascinating world at the same time. Again, because you're looking at a period in time where women's roles are about to change really dramatically and where the season goes away within about 10, 15 years of of this debutante last season. So I think it's just a very interesting sort of magnifying glass to place on, on this one aspect of society. I agree completely. 
Well, you must have done an amazing amount of research. What was that like? Well, I have to say, I, I really found The Gold Mine, which, which is a book that specifically talks about whatever your subject is. So there was a lot of research, but I was very lucky because I had some guidance. And that is because my mother read the book, The Last Curtsy, which goes by a couple of different titles, depending on which publishing territory you're in. But it's by Fiona McCarthy, who ended up becoming one of the preeminent biographers in Britain. But she herself was one of the last debutantes to be presented in 58. And she goes into very considered, sometimes very funny and wry, but very affectionate detail about what it was like going through her season and what the girls got up to during the season, what the parties and the whole world was like, and then also what some of these women did after they were debutantes. And I think it was just such a a wonderful, wonderful thing to have because she talks about everything from sort of where you stood and walked and what it was like going into the palace when you were presented all the way through to sort of where would they go after their parties? Well, a lot of these women were unchaperoned because the days of chaperones as we think of them in the Victorian era had fallen by the wayside. So a lot of the girls were going out to London Airport, which was uh, what Heathrow became, and having breakfast at four o'clock in the morning because air travel was very glamorous. And that was a really exciting thing to do. Or they were going to nightclubs and going dancing or you know, so it goes into all this wonderful detail about what their experiences would have been. But then on top of that, I also was fortunate enough to be able to speak to some debutantes. So I spoke to one woman who was actually presented in 1958 and described the whole court presentation process, but she didn't actually do the full season. So she just did the presentation. So I was very lucky. I was introduced to two women through a, an old neighbor of mine, actually who were brought out in 1964. So they weren't presented to the queen, but they did have the whole debutante season as young women. And so all the way through to sort of a ball at the Ritz and coming out drinks at, you know, at a, at a gentleman's club in London, really sort of opulent, incredibly expensive endeavor for their families. And it was really, really valuable getting a chance to speak to them. One of them, actually, I think, I think a lot of people just haven't asked uh, what their experience was like uh, in many, many years. And one of them, I, I called her because she was a, a, a recommendation of somebody to speak to. I called her and I said, hello, you know, my name is Julia Kelly. I'm writing this book. And she said, oh, well, I don't know how helpful I'm going to be to you. And then she proceeded to speak for about 30 minutes nonstop about what it was like being a debutante <laughs> and all this wonderful detail about where she shopped and all the sort of like whispered things about, about sex and, um, you know, talking about what her family expected her to do and what the parties were like and how much your shoes hurt you at the end of the night. And it was really fantastic for just getting that little bit of detail that really can make a book come alive. Absolutely. And that's so funny. Probably once she got started, she's like, I remember more than I thought I did. Absolutely. I think it was that case. And I think I think it was also an instance of, oh, you know, being modest and I don't know how much I'm going to help. And then suddenly it's like the floodgates opened. It was wonderful. That is wonderful. Well, who did you enjoy writing the most in the story? You know, I, I always love writing my main character, but I, I will be honest, I always find it slightly more more stressful because you're much more in their perspective. This book, unlike the book that we previously talked about, The Last Garden in England, The Last Dance of the Debutante focuses on one point of view character. I went from five over three timelines to one person in one timeline, <laughs> gave myself a bit of a break. 
And so you you really need to sort of get into somebody's head and their motivations and all of those things. So I do sometimes find I really enjoy writing secondary characters because it allows me to sort of play a little bit more with uh, lower stakes, shall we say, in terms of having an entire book hang on somebody. So I really enjoyed writing Lily's friend, Catherine, who is uh, the millionaire debutante. She is the debutante whose father has made a lot of money in the publishing industry. He owns a bunch of newspapers. And it's really important to her father and her mother that they're accepted into society. So they think to themselves, what we'll do is what a lot of people did for many, many years before this book is set, and we'll bring our daughter out. And so they pay for somebody to bring their daughter out. But Catherine really has other plans for her life. She wants to work in journalism, a a job close to my heart, um, because I started in journalism. And she just has a little bit of a different, and I think as a modern reader, people will recognize it as a, a more progressive, more modern look on what women can do and what women are capable of once they have a little bit of money on their on their own. You know, they're making their money themselves. So I really enjoyed writing Catherine a lot. I liked Catherine as well because she was happy to just go her merry way and do what she wanted to do and didn't feel the pressure from her parents, or at least most of the time, didn't seem to really feel the pressure from her parents. Yeah, I think she is really in a unique situation. She's she is she has a lot of family money, but it matters to her to be doing something that she not only enjoys, but she thinks make a, makes a difference in her life. And I, I liked her quite a lot. Plus, she has a great sports car and a great wardrobe. So she was fun to write about from those perspectives as well. Absolutely. And fun to read about as well. What about your beautiful, beautiful cover? Do you just love it? I love it. I want the green sofa. I want the purple dress. I, I want all of it. I want to feel that glamorous once in my life. I, I really can take absolutely no credit for that cover. It's all the wonderful art department who just just do a fantastic job on on all my covers. I'm very happy with it. And when I opened the email, getting it, I I wasn't sure what I was going to get because there I gave very little direction other than, you know, I have this character and her hair color is this and, you know, it's set in this era. And I opened it up and it's this beautiful almost painting-like image on the cover. In fact, I think it may very well be a painting. And it really reminds me of old fashion plates and sort of uh, almost vogue fashion illustrations from the time periods. I'm so pleased with it. I agree. I felt they really captured the story so well. Yeah, it evokes that time period and it evokes a bit of the sort of, I don't know, something about an end of an era, maybe. I agree completely. Well, I want to ask a little bit about your writing schedule, and I know you had a big change this year. So you went from working and writing your novels to just writing your novels. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and what your writing schedule now looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So I was, for about 10 years, juggling both writing as an author who is trying to be published or was actually published and under contract. And I just decided it was time It was time to make the leap. Um, I think that's a very personal thing for every author. It's a very personal thing for everybody just in terms of their, their personal life because you never know sort of what support network or background you know people have underpinning their work. And for me, I was doing it alone. Um, I, I didn't have a partner at the time I made the decision. I'm not married. And so it was very important for me to be able to do to be able to do this and to feel really, really stable and really secure. So naturally I did this during a pandemic and um, <laughs> of course, which is in the natural the natural response to it. 
but you know, I really reached a point where I just thought the books are the books are doing well. I'm really enjoying publishing. I think it's time to just finally make the leap. And I'm very glad I did. It really has transformed my writing schedule, transformed my life. Um, so before I was really kind of snatching time whenever I could, maybe an hour and a half, two hours a night. And then obviously working on weekends as well. But I would work my full day job, cook something for dinner, and then sit down and work again. And I was tired. I mean, being quite frank, I was I was tired a lot. But it was worth it. I was glad that I did it. And I was telling you a little bit before we before we came on and started recording that I'm I don't really know how I did it, but I'm glad I did because it's brought me to this point now where I I work pretty much an eight to five, uh, nine to five job, sitting down writing. There's a lot around writing that's not just the actual writing or editing itself. There's a lot of the marketing and the admin and, you know, once a month I pay invoices. And in, so in some ways it's like running a small business because it is a small business. It's, it's a small business of me. And so it's been wonderful being able to do that within the course of sort of normal, more normal business hours for the rest of society and my family and my friends and my partner and to not also have to then turn around after dinner and say, right, I have to do X amount more work tonight. So it's given me a lot more freedom and space to do things like read and watch movies and things that I think are really helpful with refilling the creative well, and are also just more enjoyable to, to, to be quite frank. It's nice to have a bit of time to shut your brain off and do something a bit different from the day to day. Absolutely. Just have some personal time as well. Yes, definitely. It's it's incredible how much you miss it when it's gone, but how much you, you sort of don't realize that it's gone uh, when you've been doing it for so long. So it's been a, actually a really interesting six months of sort of rediscovering what my writing process is like, what my working habits are like around being a writer, all of those things. That has to be wonderful. I love it. Even the, even the more difficult days or the less glamorous days when you're doing something like filing your taxes, um, which, which you'd have to do, even though it's a creative industry, it has to, everything has to get paid. Even that it's, it just having the time to do that throughout the course of the week has been so helpful. And then of course, having time to really dedicate to digging into research, getting a chance to sort of really sit down and, and spend some time doing preparatory work for writing. It's really helpful. I bet. It's like you went from two jobs to one. Yeah, it's this novel concept. Apparently, one job is uh, makes your life a little bit a little bit looser. You're not quite so scheduled. So. A little bit calmer, exactly. Well, on that note, are you working anything at the present that you'd like to share with me? I am. So I don't have a title, unfortunately. That's something that we're still discussing. Uh, titles are very tricky, so we, we want to make sure we get that one right. But I am working on a book that is due to be a sort of late 2022, early 2023 release. So around this similar time that The Last Dance of the Debutante and my other books as well have come out. And it is a book that focuses on a young woman who, when we meet her at the beginning of the book, she is pregnant and it is her wedding day. She's a young Catholic woman and the boy who she has gotten pregnant with is a young Jewish man. Now they're from Liverpool and it's 1935. And so one of the things that is particularly difficult about the beginning of this book is that they're crossing religious boundaries that wouldn't necessarily have been acceptable during that time. And so this is actually based on a, on a story from my family, a, a true story with um, some creative liberties taken. 
they're married at the registrar's office. And then that same day, he, for various reasons that you find out throughout the book, he picks up and leaves and she doesn't see him again. Ever? Well, and so she has this young daughter. So we jump ahead uh, to the war. She has a young daughter who's been evacuated. And because of various things that happened during the war, she's separated from her daughter more permanently. And so the story involves her and the father of her daughter coming back together to find the young girl and, and search her out and having to sort of resolve all of these all of these really difficult things that they've gone through and the fact that they haven't seen each other in years and years. And what was that connection that they had between the two of them? So it's been a really interesting one to write because it is a book that in some ways is very close to very close to my family's heart. Uh, it's a, a branch of the family that this actually did happen to. And also it involves evacuated children during the war, which is something that some of my aunts and uncles actually were evacuated from Liverpool. So there's a lot of personal family touches to it, but there's also a lot of fiction to it as well, which I think is, for me, is the best of both worlds. You get to balance it out a little bit. Well, I remember we talked some about that with your last book, that there was a little bit of your family involved in that one as well. I think there's always a touch of it in there. The question is, how much does it come to the forefront? And I do try to include some sort of family in-joke in every one of my books um, just to make my family chuckle. And usually I get WhatsApp messages when people progressively read through the book. So my sister's actually listening to the audiobook of The Last Garden in England right now. And I'm getting side messages from her as she listens through. She's very suspicious of me because she thinks that I'm going to do terrible things to all her favorite characters. So yes, it's this one is drawn a little bit more from real life than some of my previous ones. But again, I do really like having that license to build out the fictional side of the story and really put my characters through pressure, have them really make some really difficult decisions. And also it's helpful for me as an author because of course life isn't life doesn't run as a narrative. There's a lot within, you know, the course of our regular day that wouldn't necessarily be particularly interesting, I think, to to anybody to read through, you know, a blow by blow account of what somebody's day is like. So it gives me a little bit of a chance to creatively shape a narrative. Well, it sounds really good and I look forward to it already. Thank you. Well, I want to hear what you have read recently that you really liked. But before we talk about that, I want to talk a little bit about your Ask an Author series. I have popped into a couple of them and really enjoy it. But would you like to talk about that? Sure. So Ask an Author grew out of me being here in London, where my primary publishing market and obviously my accent um, are North American. So I'm, I'm from the U.S., and I'm primarily published in the US and Canada. So I wanted to make connections with other authors. I wanted to, especially during the pandemic, and especially with the difficulty around international travel, I really wanted to be able to also speak to readers. And I will give a huge amount of credit to the wonderful women at Friends in Fiction over on Facebook who have built this incredible community out of their Friends in Fiction broadcasts every week, and then also the podcast and all of those things. And I also, as I mentioned before, used to be a journalist and really miss, I missed the interviewing side of being a journalist. And so you take all those things, you know, you, you throw them into a pot, you shake it all up and you get Ask an Author, which is, has been a weekly this year in, in 2021. It was a weekly author interview broadcast, primarily focusing on historical fiction authors, although there have been some, some authors writing some different things. And I've just really, really enjoyed getting a chance to speak to all these people, to ask a lot of really nosy questions about their writing process and about 
sort of the bigger themes in their books. And it's just been really a joy, especially through the pandemic. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with it in 2022, because I always think it's fun to sort of iterate and do different things and and challenge things a little bit. So I'm going to be doing a little bit of thinking over that over the next the next few weeks and trying to trying to come up with something new and interesting but keeping at the heart of it that author interview and also all of the reader interaction with authors is really really important to me. Well, I've really enjoyed them, so I'm glad that you have done them. Thank you. Well, what about what you've read that you really enjoyed? Well, I told you beforehand I was going to have to pull my Goodreads up, so I'm doing that right now. I can tell you a, a book that I literally just finished and I thought was just beautiful and really wonderfully written is The Postmistress of Paris by Meg Waite Clayton. So this is a World War II set book set in France about an American heiress and a German photographer and sort of what happens between the two of them as Germany marches into France and then also they they live through occupation as well. It's beautifully written and I thought was really uh, sensitively done. And I really enjoyed The Wedding Veil by Christy Woodson Harvey. Um, So that book doesn't come out until I believe the late winter, early spring of next year uh, or of 2022, but it's just wonderful. It's her first dual timeline, historical fiction and contemporary fiction book. And she has such a wonderful wit and you know, wonderfully observed relationships between women. I really enjoy her books and have been reading her for a long time. So I was delighted to see that. And then one more book that I'm not sure whether it's made the jump from the UK to a wider audience yet, but I read it and thought it was very clever and very well done is called The Appeal by Janice Hallett. And it's an, (laughs) I struggle with this word. So let's see if I can get this right. It's an epistolary novel. I think I got it. And it's all set around an amateur dramatic society in the UK and a murder happens. And the device is that two essentially law associates are trying to figure out if the police arrested the wrong person. So you enter the book not knowing who the murderer is, not knowing who was murdered and not knowing what's happened. And it's all revealed through emails and text messages and you know flyers for the play and all these different things. And it's incredibly clever how it's laid out. I just absolutely loved it. My whole family's read it. And I think it's really, it's really a fantastic debut book. I always struggle with that word as well and have to sort of say it in my head four times. And then sometimes it comes out right. And sometimes it doesn't. I'm very glad that you said that because I always feel a little silly when I, when I do sit there and I'm, before I say it, I do the same thing. I think to myself, it's epistolary. It's epistolary. <laughs> It's just funny how there are some words like that. I was even doing that with debutante earlier when we were talking. All of a sudden, I was like, why can't I say debutante, right? So it's just funny that words sometimes do that. And I think that book comes out in late January here. Oh, wonderful. Well, it's definitely worth picking up. It's um, it's a lot of fun, and it feels very British to me. So especially if people enjoy the more sort of British crime drama side of things that's maybe a little cozier, so something like Midsummer Murders, I think that this might be a good fit for them. Well, great. Well, Julia, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast again. I always enjoy speaking with you. Oh, I'm so glad I could uh, I could join you, and, and I really appreciate you having me on. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because 
The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.